Well, Father, that is our prayer, that we would take the old book, your inspired scripture, that we would take it carefully and, and open it joyfully and study it diligently. Father, would you use this time to impact our lives in a great way, Lord? The time is short, and we have such little time to study together, and so would you just take your word and and use it as a scalpel to cut deep. Use it, Lord, as a mirror to reflect upon us the reality of our own condition. Use it well as fodder for the Holy Spirit to grow us and to challenge us. Father, we just uh, commit this time to you, and we want to be diligent hearers of the word, but we want to be disciplined doers as well. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. First Samuel 17. Just listen. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, nine foot six. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and he had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed... 600 shekels of iron, maybe 15 pounds, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me, and if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine Goliath came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and They and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. 
I think that's the overstatement of the passage. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks, and he went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. When the words that David had spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped on his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go in these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward, and he came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and he saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, little g. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran over and he stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and he drew it out of his sheath and he killed him and he cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As they were coming home into Jerusalem, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And they sang, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Can you imagine the joy that swept through the land? Can you imagine the relief of the ranks among the soldiers of Israel who 80 times, morning and evening for 40 days, had thumped their chests and assembled for battle and then upon Goliath's threats had turned and run. Do I need to tell you this morning that whether it's the battlefield or the ball field or the boardroom, leadership makes all the difference. What a great story we have in this young man, David. And he illustrates beautifully, doesn't he, that leadership is influence. Leadership is not about a name tag on the door of an office. I mean, just think about the conditions in Israel. Without spiritual leadership and under Saul's carnal, cowardly leadership, the forces of evil seemed overwhelming to the people. The hearts of the soldiers melted and they could accomplish nothing. God's people were living in defeat, falling far short of the blessing of God. There was a total lack of direction and knowing God's will for the people. Ultimately, under unqualified carnal leadership, there was a low view of God and a lack in faith that he had even remembered his people and could rescue. And then this young man from the hill country comes in spontaneously provides leadership for the entire nation. And what a change. What a dramatic turnaround. 
immediately there's a brand new renewed perspective. There is hope. There is courage to stand. There's faith to move forward. There's a young man to model how to attack darkness and the forces of evil. God's name is praised and he's made famous in all the land. He provided solutions. He provided action. He provided a model of behavior. That's what spiritual leadership does to people. It shows the way. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue in our study in this pastoral epistle of the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy. And this morning, we are laying a groundwork for a brand new series on leadership. And not just leadership, leadership, but spiritual leadership. I want to read our passage, and then I want us to make five observations about spiritual leadership from this passage. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read as our text today, verses 1 through 7, but we will primarily then draw our observations from verse 1. Let me remind you that I have transitioned to the English Standard Version, the ESV, We made comment about that a couple of weeks ago, and in the near future, uh, we have it almost ready for presentation. We have a pamphlet that will be available in the foyer for you to read if you would like to know further why we made this decision. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I think that this is a timely series, and I want you to know that I'm going to take my time with this chapter 3, We're going to use it for a variety of reasons in a variety of ways. The first thing you need to know about our series on spiritual leadership is this, that our first application and our understanding as we exegete this passage is that it is specifically written by the senior level leader, the Apostle Paul, to the junior level leader, Timothy, who is pastoring and shepherding a church that has gone awry. They have now gotten to a place in Ephesus, this is where Timothy is, where the leadership is no longer qualified to be called spiritual leadership. As a result, they have all kinds of problems in the church, and that's mainly what we've been dealing with in our messages from the beginning of this passage. They have doctrinal error. They've had to excommunicate two of these leaders who do not qualify in chapter 1. They've had to deal with some problems that are surfacing in even the gender roles What these men are teaching, what they're allowing, and the church is in a shambles. So the first thing you need to know is as we study this passage, our primary application is to spiritual leadership within the local church body. This is God's design for leadership in the local church. I don't think that I have to 
prove in much detail that we live in an era where quality leadership is hard to find. In the arena of politics, in the arena of industry, people are longing for good leadership. We have lived in a season where it is difficult to find somebody who would be of the leadership substance that would be worthy of immortalizing in stone. We have abuse of leadership that is rampant. We have mistrust and misguided direction. We have abuse of people. We have the highest offices of our land that should be respected. We have them taking primetime television to lie to our people. We just lack integrity of leadership. And you need to know that across the board, the church has been struggling for good leadership. Everywhere we look and across our country, churches are struggling. And in almost all fronts, it stems back to unqualified leadership. It's a timely message for our own church that we check ourselves, that we be very careful to recognize that God has given through the Apostle Paul to young Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, and the church in Shenandoah Junction, specific criteria for leadership in the local church. It matters. That's our first application. Local church leadership, quality spiritual leadership, biblical leadership. The second thing you need to know about this list of criteria, and you will notice that it has very little with what they are supposed to do, and it has everything to do with who they are as a person of God. The second thing you need to know about this series, and it's particularly the reason why we all need to pay attention, is that there is nowhere in the New Testament that allows any believer in Christ who's attached to any local church to live below any of the criteria that are presented. So therefore, this becomes a guideline and a template for all believers as they seek to mature in Christ. So first, the leadership of the local church and why it matters. Secondly, the challenge to all of us that these are the minimums of a growing Christian. There is nowhere that releases anyone who is a believer in the Lord Christ from being responsible to live out any one of these claims. Perhaps we could argue apt to teach. Not everyone is gifted to teach. We could give some wiggle room on that quality in and of itself. Let's return to verse 1 and this morning let's break down verse 1 and let's continue to lay a groundwork for our studies in the week ahead in the weeks ahead. Five observations about spiritual leadership. Notice the first thing the Apostle Paul says in verse 1 is that this is a trustworthy saying. That's a Pauline expression, and you need to know that it's only written and used by Paul in his later works. That is, later in his life. You don't see that expression in his earlier writings. For example, 1 Corinthians or Galatians, Ephesians. But in the pastoral epistles, later in his life, the Apostle Paul uses a phrase as an attention-getter. And five different times he'll say, this is a trustworthy saying. One of the things you need to know about that saying is that many Bible students believe from studying that, that they believe that some of these sayings, that when the Apostle Paul said, this is a trustworthy saying, that it had probably become a known expression in those churches, even in the form of a creed. And so when he said, this is a trustworthy saying, it was something that maybe the people would even repeat back. 
and that they were familiar with it. What is the trustworthy saying? The trustworthy saying is a reliable saying. You can count on this being true, that if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. The first observation that I want to make out of this verse is this. Number one, it is that spiritual leadership is more than a title and an office. Spiritual leadership has a lot more to do than just getting a business card in your wallet, getting a nameplate on a door, and having a desk somewhere. In fact, as I've already referenced, it has everything to do with what's going on on the inside, the level of maturity. Let's take a look at the language of the passage because it sheds a little bit of light and it will also keep us from becoming confused in the future as we look at this. The Apostle Paul uses an interesting word here. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it says in the ESV and in the NIV, in the New King James or Old King James, you'll notice that it uses the word bishop. If anybody aspires to be an overseer or a bishop. The word bishop means one who oversees. It comes from an interesting word in the Greek that you'll probably recognize because they've made an English word out of it. It's the word that sounds something like this in the Greek, episkopos, episkopos, episcopal, the bishop. Now, in our independent Bible churches and and, uh, independent Baptist churches, we're not real big on titles. Um, Even in many churches, uh, they use first name basis with the pastors and the elders. Um, Here we say Pastor Van or Pastor Everett, Pastor Mark, things like that. But our elders, we often use first name basis. And uh, that's very common in our churches. It really wouldn't be wrong, instead of saying Pastor Van, to say, and I think maybe we should practice this, (laughs) the bishop. And there will be a bishop's meeting tomorrow night. I kind of like the ring to that. You see, in our, in our culture, we picture, you know, someone wearing a big hat or something. We picture somebody with uh, high office. But the Apostle Paul is simply using a word that the people would have understood them as a word that meant an overseer. Now, it's interesting that there is... There are two other passages of Scripture where the Apostle Paul will address specifically the criteria and the dynamics of what it means to be qualified to lead spiritually in the local church. The other passage, besides this First Timothy passage, the next one is found in Titus. And if you'll turn over a couple pages to Titus chapter 1, he, it's interesting that he uses, in, in many ways, a very parallel passage. That is... That when he says above reproach and husband of one wife and so forth, it looks very similar. These lists are very similar. He's talking about the same office. He's talking about the overseers, the bishops, but he uses a different word to describe them. Notice in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. He says to young Titus, who in many ways is a counterpart of Timothy, They were somewhat associates in ministry, young men that Paul was mentoring, that he had established in ministry. So Timothy and Titus are very similar, young men appointed to churches where Paul was giving them direction on how to grow those churches, how to build them strong in the Lord. Paul says to Titus in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, he says, This is the reason I left you in Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. Take things, so evidently things were out of order in the churches there, and he wants some of these loose ends put together and put the churches in order. And the first thing he says to put the churches in order is to do what? 
appoint, and notice the word that he uses here, appoint elders in every town. Every town that has a church, be sure and go there and find men who meet this this level of qualifications and appoint them to leadership so that they can put things in order. There's a couple things that are interesting about this. As we do our study, you will notice that the Apostle Paul is strangely silent about what the church form and function was to look like. I mean, they know they're supposed to preach the word, preach the gospel, evangelize, baptize, share meals together, bear one another's burdens. But other than that, he doesn't say how many sections to divide the auditorium into when they set up the chairs. He doesn't say whether to have a men's retreat or not. He doesn't say what time Sunday school and church is supposed to be, whether or not to have a Sunday evening service. There's no template. And that's why churches look differently from one another. But what he does say about leadership in the church is, you had better pay attention when you set things in order to put qualified men in position. I draw from that the fact that if the right men, spiritual, godly, biblically-minded, Christ-centered men, are in the office of overseer, bishop overseer, they have a parameter of spiritual freedom based upon wisdom principles. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors based upon the fact that that when we pool our collective wisdom and godliness, that we can prayerfully lead the church as the Holy Spirit directs. God isn't so concerned how many sections of chairs, whether there's carpet or tile on the floor, whether Sunday school is before church or after church. God's just not too worried about that stuff. What God is worried about is the heart, integrity, and godliness of whoever's leading that local church. And notice the second word that he uses here in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He says that you might put it in order, get these guys. He doesn't tell them how to put it in order. He just says, get the right guys and let them figure out how to put it in order. And appoint elders in every town. This is an interesting word in the Greek. He goes on to, to give the very similar list as what he gave in 1 Timothy 3 that we're going to study. And in fact, we're going to incorporate the Titus 1 list just to, just to make it more exhaustive. But where in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, he uses the word bishop, overseer, here he uses another word that in the Greek, when translated into English, you might recognize. And it sounds something like this in in Greek. Presbyteros. The presbyteros. The presbytery. Now, we have denominations that have even taken these names and named their denomination. The Episcopalians, the Presbyterians. What does that mean? It's translated in our ESV and in our NIV, elders, elders. The presbyteros was a group of men who who qualified to be called elders because of their spiritual maturity, because of their experience, because of their reliability. So put that with the word bishop, one who is an overseer. Put that word, the uh, episkopos, with the presbyteros, one who is an elder, one who has maturity, one who has experience, one who is capable of leadership, it kind of adds up. And he gives the same list. I would take it, and we will handle it this way, that you can argue, and I see no reason to think otherwise, that these terms aren't, aren't uh, usable, interchangeable. That you could use the word bishop, episkopos, you could use the word elder, Presbyteros, interchangeably. 
And there's one more word that we use a lot, and it's found in Paul's writing in Acts chapter 20. But I want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter uses it. And if you would take a minute to flip over just a few more pages to the epistle of 1 Peter, notice in chapter 5, this is our third list of criteria for qualified spiritual leadership. So we have three lists, three passages that are our primary sources of information as to who qualifies for spiritual leadership. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. Now notice the name, that the word that he uses in 1 Peter 5. And actually he uses all three of the names that we're talking about of what you can call these spiritual leaders in 1 Peter 5. He uses all three. I'll show you. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, so I exhort, so that's strong language. I'm, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. I exhort you. I exhort the, here's the word that we just saw in Titus. I exhort the elders among you. That's presbyteros, elders, one who has mature a mature enough spiritual walk to oversee other people's growth and development. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Do this, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The word shepherd right there, translated shepherd, it comes from the agriculture world. Because sheep are famous for needing assistance. Sheep don't do well foraging on their own. Sheep need help guiding them to the water. Sheep need help guiding them to the feed. Sheep need help protecting them from the bear and from the lion like David did in our story. And so the shepherd is the one who nurtures and cares and oversees the sheep. He's talking to the elders To be pastors, the word shepherd is where we get our word pastor. And that's the word we're most familiar with here. We use it the most to be the pastor. That It would also be appropriate to say, hey, shepherd van, how are you? But it would also be appropriate to call any of our elders, any of the elders and any of the other pastors, bishop, elder, or pastor, or shepherd. They're all, I take it, to be interchangeable because he's addressing the same group of people with the same like-minded responsibility in all of the ministries. I want to make one other observation about this office that it doesn't have that much to do with a title. It has a lot to do with, a lot more to do with other things. And notice that what he's talking about are qualified men, but notice in each of our passages, you're probably still in 1 Peter 5, if you look down at 1 Peter 5 verse 1, he says, so I exhort the elders. Um, By the way, I just happened to look down on my page and I thought I didn't finish telling you the third word is used in this passage. So he says, elders, verse 1, that's presbyteros. Then verse 2, shepherd, that's the word for pastor, we don't have a Greek, English Greek equivalent like the other two words so much. Elder, pastor, and then he goes on to say that is among you exercising oversight. That's the word for bishop, the overseer, oversight, the episkopos, that word used right there. All three words used in the same passage. Now back up to the first, first line. So I exhort the elders among you. Here's what I want to point out. Did you notice the S on the end of the word there? The elders among you. 
Now let's flip back to 1 Timothy. On your way back, pause at Titus chapter 1. And notice what he says to Titus. Titus 1.5, where we just were. He says, So that you might put what remained into order and appoint, notice what he says, appoint elders. There's an S. It's plural. When we get to 1 Timothy 3, it's not as obvious there. But Paul also wrote in other, many other passages, a couple that come to mind would be, for example, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, where he called for the congregation's attention, and then he said, and also the deacons and the elders. We're going to find out in our study that there are two enduring offices of leadership in the church. One is the position of elder, and we know now that we could call that the position of the bishop, or the pastor, or the shepherd, or the elder. All the same position. That's the same people. And the deacons. That's another role. And deacons comes from a word that means servant. The elders and the deacons. The overseers and the servants. The presbyteros and the diaconate. Those are the two enduring offices that I see taught in the New Testament to, to manage, to govern, to protect to guide spiritually in the church. But what I want you to see, Philippians 1, he says, tell the congregation, tell the deacons, and tell the elders. And he's talking about one church, the church at Philippi. In Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, when years before he was dealing with the church at Ephesus, he's talking about the fact that call the elders from one church. And so one thing I want to point out here early on is that you understand that when we're talking about spiritual leadership in the local church, the New Testament, all of the evidence points to the fact that it is to be a plurality of eldership. It's not to be just one potentate. It's not supposed to be just one guy. And there are numerous church models within fundamentalism and evangelicalism that teach that. They teach that just the pastor is the elder, and then there's a diaconate, or deacons, or even a new word, trustees. And that the pastor is, is, is the head of the church, individually, as one man. I want to tell you something. If you are part of a pastor-run church, watch out. Watch out. I'm not saying that there's not a lot of good men that believe that. But I'm telling you that God never intended one man to operate single-handedly with that much control and power. God in His design and in His sovereign wisdom knows that we all need accountability. And so here at Fellowship Bible Church on our elder board, we have three pastors and three lay leaders, lay elders, and we are all equal in authority. There are some ways that we have established a chain of command, and we will talk about that in the future as we understand what our roles are and how God uses us. But I want you to see that there's a plurality of eldership taught in the New Testament. No lone rangers. Observation number one is that it's more than a title in an office. It has to do with maturity to be an elder. It has to do with being a bishop, an overseer. It has to, be, has to do with being a responsible shepherd. It has to do a lot more with what we are and what our role function is than it is the very tasks that we're to perform. The second thing I want you to see is that this position is fueled, fueled or driven by spiritual passion. 
It is driven or fueled by a spiritual passion. Notice the words that the Apostle Paul uses. We're back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And notice that he says about this trustworthy saying that this office of a bishop or overseer, that if anyone does what? Aspires or desires, he then desires a noble task. I want you to see that this is the idea that this is a drive that is spiritual. It is something induced, I believe, by the Holy Spirit. Not everybody, not all men will feel the desire to be a leader in the local church. Not everyone has the drive to want to hold that kind of position of responsibility. And Paul says that when you appoint these elders and when you look for qualified men, one of the criteria is that he is to desire this office. And I'm not talking about an inappropriate desire. I'm not talking about somebody who just wants to have power, somebody who wants to have prestige. You see, you won't have that kind of attitude of arrogance if you humbly fulfill all the other requirements in our list. But one of the things you need to know that this was a different day. This was a different time. And the men did not need to feel pressured to be in that role because one of the things that happened in the early church, that it was the bishopry, it was the eldership, it was the shepherding body, the leaders of the local church that were the first to come under fire in the persecuted church. You want to take this position? You better know that you better want it. It better be fueled with a passion. It better be a spirit-led passion. You better know it because you're going to pay for it. It's not easy street like it is now sitting around drinking Mountain Dew and eating potato chips at our elders' meeting. No, we don't do that. But It's like, you want to be part of the leadership? You might get your windows broken in. You might lose your family. You might have your property confiscated. You might lose your house. Listen, the first criteria is you better want to have this position. Somehow God put it inside you that there is a burning passion that I want to lead this local church. And it does kind of make sense, doesn't it? Because what is the local church? The local church is the body of Christ, isn't it? Why would he want careless men? Why would he want unqualified carnal men to lead his work? He would want, he would want his body here on earth protected by men with a passion and a zeal. Men like David who looked across that evil and said, Why? Why would you let that intimidate us? We are the people of the living God. Let's live as such. People with a passion, people with a zeal. Let's turn to Acts chapter 20 briefly. And not only do we see all of our offices listed here, but I want to show you briefly in Acts chapter 20 that the desire for this office comes from the Holy Spirit. Notice in Acts chapter 20, he's going to use in Acts chapter 20 verse 17, notice this is where he calls for the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 17. He said, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders, that's the presbyteros, and it's plural, get these men, this group of men to come over. And then if we turn our eyes down to verse 28, notice what he says to them. In verse 28 of Acts 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, here's episcopos, overseers, to care for the church. The word care there is the word shepherd, to shepherd the flock. 
All three words used for the same guys. But what I want you to see here under this point is that this position needs to be filled by men who have a passion fueled by a spiritual zeal, by the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who made them overseers? The Holy Spirit. Somehow, back to 1 Timothy 3, somehow, mysteriously, when our young man or an older man who begins to grow spiritually has a vision for the priority of the gospel, for the priority of doctrinal teaching, for the priority of the local church and the impact that it should have on a community and on a country, Somehow, when that desire begins to grow and you have a passion, it was implanted by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Who the Holy Spirit appointed to lead the work. Pretty serious, isn't it? This is the body of Christ. Have you ever longed for the real body of Jesus to be here? I'm talking like Jesus to come walking in and put his arms around you or put his arm around your shoulder and say, hey, Let's, let's talk here a little bit. When that happens, and it only happened in a three-year window, when it happens now, how does it happen? If you're down the hall outside the emergency room or down the hall outside an ICU, you would long for Jesus, our good shepherd, to come walking in. But now, when someone from the church, a brother or sister in Christ, comes walking down the hall, do you realize that that is in a spiritual sense, the personification of Jesus here? That this is the living, physical representation of the body of Christ? I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm saying that He is the head of His church. And believers worldwide, they represent His body on earth. And specifically in Shenandoah Junction, this local body represents Christ here on earth. Why would you want guys bored with their own existence and bored with Jesus to be overseeing that? You would want men who, appointed by the Holy Spirit, and implanted with a zeal from the Holy Spirit, have a passion for leadership spiritually. Let's move on quickly. I want you to notice that it is also a great privilege. Notice that it is also, number three, a great privilege. Look at Paul's words in 1 Timothy 3.1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires, look at the phrase that he uses, he desires a noble task. It's a noble task. It is a good work. It is a high calling. It is a noble task. It's interesting language. The fourth thing I want you to see in the context here in verses 1 through 7 is number four, that it is limited by qualification. It is limited by qualification. It is limited to only people who want to do it. In other words, under, under the idea that it is fueled by a spiritual passion, the end result there is that no one should be an elder or serve as a bishop or a shepherd or a pastor who doesn't want to. If you don't want to, you shouldn't do it. But I want you to see, number four, that it is limited also by qualification. There is to be a certain level of maturity. It's not to be by a recent convert. It's not to be a novice. There are certain dangers when spiritually immature people enter into this office prematurely. It's as though there's a gate on the, on the entry to the office to the position, and the Apostle Paul built the gate, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, you only open the gate and let in here the people who meet these minimums. 
And I'll tell you, point number five of our observation this morning is that it is, a dev- that it is devastating to the testimony of Christ and his church when these qualifications are compromised. When this office is compromised, it is devastating to the church and the testimony of Jesus Christ in the community. And this is a problem that we really have in America. We don't hold to the manual. We haven't held to the criteria of what God says. And we put unqualified people in positions of leadership. And as a result, God's people have scattered and the church is divided and and there's problems and they're demoralized because of carnal, unqualified leadership. Well, there's five observations. Let me review them quickly with you from verse 1. First of all, I hope you can see from the very language that the Apostle Paul uses, overseer, elder, and pastor, that it is more than a title, but it isn't, and it's more than an office, this kind of leadership. Number two, it is fueled by a spiritual passion. Number three, it is a great privilege. It is a noble work. Number four, it is limited by these qualifications. Not just anybody can get in the gate. Number five, when we don't follow God's word, it is devastating to the work of Christ and his local church. Well, we're going to take our time and go through this passage slowly. I have a couple things on my heart that I want to share in conclusion. And the first is this, that over the course of the next several weeks, interrupted by Easter and men's retreat speaker, that as we study 1 Timothy chapter 3 on the eldership and the deacon and the diaconate, that I trust that God will use it in the hearts of our boys and our men, and particularly our young men, that the Holy Spirit will use His Word to stir their hearts, that Fellowship Bible Church would be characterized by men who aspire to spiritual leadership. Proper motivation driven and fueled with a spiritual passion, not the flesh, but that out of this next several weeks, as we study God's word and this passage particularly, that God's going to touch the heart of some of our young men. Some perhaps to enter full-time ministry. Others to prepare themselves to serve in our local church or churches in the area or as we have opportunity to plant churches that we would have qualified men to go and lead as bishops. Second thing I hope happens from this passage in this spiritual leadership series is this. I hope that the women of Fellowship Bible Church will become overjoyed with the spiritual growth that they see in the lives of their men. When I was a youth pastor, I used to teach my youth staff this principle because I was criticized for always doing a lot with the boys of our youth group. Playing basketball, running the river, digging ditches and building things, once in a while blowing up things. And the girls would come and say, Pastor Van, you don't ever do anything for us. We really did, but here's what I taught our youth staff. I said, listen, by intention, we want to raise up godly young men in this group because if we have godly boys, we will have godly girls. There's a few other practical reasons. It's a little easier for me to minister to boys personally, and girls. But I kind of think that bleeds over in the whole church. I think that God has designed women to to be somewhat just more spiritually sensitive, to want their household to be in order, to want their husbands to be disciplined, 
to want their children to be raised up in godliness. I know there are exceptions, but I think generally women tend to be more spiritually sensitive naturally the way God designed them than men. But men, if you will use this passage as a template for spiritual growth and development, and you begin to grow, I think it will only produce joy in the women of Fellowship Bible Church. I think the women of Fellowship Bible Church long to see the men being strong and spiritual and godly. The third thing, and I've touched upon it already, so not only do I want particularly young men through this series to aspire to be spiritual leaders, not only do we want our women to be filled with joy as they see the spiritual development of their men, but number three... I particularly have in my heart because here's what I think is going to happen. I think that a lot of guys look at this and we've laid a groundwork and we've already said that our primary focus in understanding this passage has to be that Paul is teaching about spiritual leadership in the local church. But did you get the part where I said there is no exception in the Christian walk for anybody to live below these minimums? The third and final thing on my heart is this that God will give me the grace to teach this passage and break it down a piece at a time that we would be able to that we would be able to use this passage as a template as a strategy for spiritual growth in all of our lives this passage provides a wonderful template for all men and women Got to change the wording on a couple things, like husband of one wife. But the principle is the same. This passage provides a template. It provides, it provides a standard to which all of us should aspire. And I trust we can use it as a strategy for personal spiritual growth. I hope that you will buy into it, that you will dig into it, and that you will say... I'm going to get this passage down and I'm going to understand what it takes to conquer every one of these dynamics and principles. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we look to you for our strength and we look to you for the grace to be able to use this passage as a guideline for spiritual growth, as a motivation for spiritual development. Father, would you please protect Fellowship Bible Church, protect the leadership here. Father, would you give us the tenacity to walk in obedience to your word without apology? Would you show us how to conform to the image of Jesus Christ and make Jesus Christ Lord over every part of our lives? And so renew us and refocus us and rebuild us as we look at this kind of spiritual leadership that is so desperately needed at all levels. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.